0: So, our topic this morning is, what is church? Brian, uh, over the last two weeks, was dealing with what you might call a topic titled, Why Does the Church Matter? And in his first sermon, he had the key point of, the church matters because the glory of God matters. That was his key point. And and he articulated that he's going to fly us at about 40,000 feet. And he took us through a lot of Old Testament backdrop and part of a meta-narrative leading up to and answering the question, why does the church matter? And then his second sermon last week, his main point was it's impossible to be an obedient god honoring christian and not be part of a local church now at first that kind of kind of grabbed me but i'm like yeah that's true and he said i'm i'm to do that i'm going to bring you down around 10 to the 10,000 foot level And now, I'm going to take us down even closer as we start bringing this plane down to ground level. And I'm going to start laying a foundation, I hope, this morning for a lot of the the following sermons, which will be much more in detail. Before I do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who's the head of that church, and your spirit who fills us and is in us as part of that church. So we lift up our time this morning. We pray that your word significantly, significantly impacts our minds and our hearts and how we can best align ourselves to your purpose and plan. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things Brian did last week was he quoted from a Ligonier State of Theology 2022 survey, which I found very, in the one piece that he mentioned I found very interesting. He used it as the lead-in and it's a survey that was done in 2022, last year. Ligonier is an organization that R.C. Spruill used to head up. And they surveyed over 3,000 people. And I think they do this every two years. And there's just some, I want to use the word fascinating, but that's too kind. It's uh, not not so good of a picture of what's happening in America over the years. And the, and the question he focused on was one they asked. It said, the statement was, every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. And then they had five different possible responses. And then you could, you could sort through the data and only look at what the evangelical church response was, and only 26% of the evangelicals strongly agreed that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. I mean, that's amazing. That's not good. And so I, he, he kind of gave me the, the thought, I, I need to go, I need to go look. And I kind of browse through the whole survey, and i got to tell you, you would be amazed where the church is at with a lot of theological issues, uh, and things are not going in the right direction. But the question I've camped on was a question or a statement that said, worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. That's the statement. Five different responses. And of the somewhat agree or strongly agree that worshiping alone with one's family is a valid replacement for regular, 56% of evangelicals agreed with that. That's amazing. That's stunning, is what it is. That's a problem. That's a problem. So, as we're on this venture to spend time looking at what we call ecclesiology, the theology of the church, we're going to try and dispel some of those things, hopefully, and help you and the Spirit work in your heart to think about those things in a better more correct fashion so we're going to be kind of this morning stressing the difference between like a bible study versus a church a lot of people both churched people and outside the church have they don't have a good Definition or perspective or understanding, a biblical understanding of what the church really is. So, that's part of my goal this morning, to start us down in in an even more definite way. How to deal with those two points. The church, the new covenant just by itself, was not enough. You could say that uh, that's, that's something that works in the heart, but it's not something that's visible to the rest of the world. Well, the local church is what makes that visible to the rest of the world, and we're going we're gonna to go after that this morning. Here's, here's a quote from Charles Ryrie and his book, Survey of Biblical Doctrine. It's something we've used in the past. He says, Late Christians, theologians, and churchmen have all seemed to be confused today about the church. Many believers know little more about the church than that it is their regular place of worship on such and such a street. Theologians are confused about important matters, such as when the church began, and churchmen themselves are divided on matters of government, goals, and activities for the church. Added to all this is the suspicion that the church may have entirely lost its usefulness and that we should use other agencies for doing the Lord's work. That's not good. Now even guys like George Barna, you've heard us reference George Barna through the years, who did a lot of survey work, he got to the point where he got so frustrated with the local church that he kind of abandoned it for other means, which was amazing. To this last charge, let it be said that God is not through with his church. No matter how heretical or worldly a church may be, Christ still seeks to work through it. You can see that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now listen to the following statement. The home and the church are the only two God-ordained institutions, institutions for carrying out his work that's an important statement. The home and the church are the only two God-ordained institutions for carrying out his work. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't use other organizations or other ways, but it is to emphasize the church is of primary importance in his purpose. key point for today. When we abandon the church, we abandon giving glory to God by not following his purpose and plan for this age. When we abandon the church, we abandon giving glory to God by not following his purpose and plan for this age. How can we say that? Well, one of the passages Brian brought up was Ephesians 3, 9 and 10. Turn there for a minute. Let's read it. I want you to to visualize it. And I'm going to actually go through 11. Now, Paul here is as we've said sometimes in the past, kind of giving his job description, which was in verse 8, preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches. And part two of his job description was to bring to light in verse 9, what's the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things? 10. Verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God, or multifaceted wisdom of God, might now be made known through the church. And then in verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. God's manifold wisdom. And I'm going to add a verse to that, and if you, if you continue down with Paul's reasoning and thought process down to the bottom of the chapter, he finishes with verse 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You want to know God's purpose and plan? You're getting it right here in Ephesians. The question is, do we really believe that? When we talk about bringing God glory, I know many times Through the years, when I hear that, it's kind of a a nebulous thing, like, what is glory? How do you bring God glory? How do you do that? Well, part of what we're hoping to accomplish in a lot of these topical sermons is helping you grasp better how you personally, your family, and this church can bring glory to God. And it's through his church. So, one of the other things that uh, Brian talked a little bit about was, well, what is that word, church? Where does that come from? And it comes from two two Greek uh, words, which really means to call out, a gathering or an assembly. And there's four different ways that the term is used in the New Testament. Sometimes it means an assembly of townspeople. We see that in Acts 19, in Ephesus, when they when there was almost a riot and they, they called everybody out. There's another way that it's used in Acts 7, which was referencing the gathering of the Jewish people and their assembling in the wilderness. But by far, the most frequently way the word is used is with a local group of Christians living in a certain place. Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth. And then there's a fourth way that it's used. And it's a technical meaning. It refers to the church universal in which all believers and only believers belong. And actually in Ephesians, that form of church is probably most referenced more than any of the other epistles. So the meaning is it's an assembly. The kind of assembly must be determined from the passage where the word is used. So the doctrine of the Christian church is primarily concerned with universal and local church. We would say the day of Pentecost marks the beginning of the church. And it seems that is evident for the following reasons. So that's what it is, but when did it start? The Lord spoke of the church being future in Matthew 16, 18. I guess you could say that might mean the church did not exist in Old Testament times. Two, the resurrection and ascension of Christ are essential to the functioning of the church. The church is built on the resurrection. We see that in Ephesians 1. And the giving of gifts is required for its operation, which in turn is dependent on Christ's ascension, when we talked about that at the end of Luke. You see that in Ephesians 4. If by some stretch of the imagination, imaginative theology, the body of Christ could be said to have existed before the ascension of Christ, it would have to be concluded it was an ungifted, inoperative body. The churches being built on the resurrection and ascension of Christ I think makes it distinctive to this age but three, the most important, the principal evidence that the church began on the day of Pentecost concerns the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord declared that this particular distinctive ministry of the Spirit was still future before his ascension. On the day of Pentecost, 10 days later, it first occurred. Spirit baptism. What is it? 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, It places the believer in the body of Christ. Since that's the only way to enter the body, and this is the work of the Spirit which occurred on the day of Pentecost, I think we can conclude that the church, the body of Christ, began on the day of Pentecost. Now I want to just distinguish a little bit universal church and local church because it's used in different ways in Scripture. We're going to camp most of the time most of the time on the local church. The universal church is that spiritual organism of which Christ is the head and believers from Pentecost and after after are the members of it. It is Christ's church in that he claimed it, Matthew 16. He taught those who would first lead it, and he was the one who sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to form it and empower it. And in his resurrection and ascension, he became head over his body, the church, giving her gifts, and preparing her to be his bride without spot and blemish. Because there's only one universal church, wherever the word church is used, it's only found in a singular sense. However, the word can be both singular or plural, but when it's singular, It could be talking about the universal church. The relationship between Christ and his church in this way has also some illustrations in scripture that deal with this concept of a universal church. Here's some illustrations you're familiar with, I'm sure. Christ is the shepherd. We're his sheep. Christ is the vine, we're the branches. Christ is the cornerstone, we're the stones in the building. Christ is the high priest, we're a kingdom of priests. Etc., etc. Christ is the first fruits, we're the harvest. He's the master, we're the servants. There's a lot of lot of illustrations that talk about this Some people call it the big C church that are talked about in scripture. But what we're interested in this morning is a local church. So what is a local church? If that's the church, really what we see is that's the church in aggregate, but the visible demonstration of that is what we would call the local Church. That's you, right here, right now. You're the visible representation of the body of Christ here in Kennesaw, Georgia. There's a lot of examples of that in the the sense that there's the church which was in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, the church in Ephesus, Corinth. Thessalonica, a lot of the letters were written to local churches. There are also references to, in plural sense, to multiple churches, such as the churches of Galatia, the churches of Judea, and the churches of Asia. So it could be singular or plural in terms of its usage. Now there's a good deal of discussion about what's necessary to constitute a local church. Is it just a gathering of two or three people? You know, we were in with the high school group and we brought this up. And a lot of times, some people that you may actually have interacted with would say, well, we'll, where two or three are gathered, I'm there in in my name, and therefore it's church. So if we gather in somebody's house, or we have a Bible study, then that's church. That could be church. And we're going to continue to go through the material this morning and go, Not so much. And there's a concept perhaps out there of am I in a church if I'm at home watching a church's service, which may not even be in my city, it might be outside the city where I live. But am I in church at that time? How much or how little organization is required? Is baptism necessary? now unfortunately there's no real specific these five verses say this is what the church is in scripture in scripture but there are many characteristics of local churches and so we can formulate a pretty descriptive definition of what a local church is and if we take those features and put them in a definition on your handout, you've got a definition that we worked through some years ago as a leadership team. Barb, I think we're out of sheets back there. Um, So that definition is pretty comprehensive. A local church is an assembly of baptized believers meeting together regularly in a particular locality under the oversight of recognized elders to participate in biblical teaching, fellowship, prayer, the Lord's Supper, and it's for the purpose of bringing glory to God and has been given the authority to make disciples and establish the Church of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty comprehensive definition of what a local church is. Notice, there must be a profession of faith. Not just anybody can belong to a local church. Two, the New Testament knows nothing of unbaptized church members. Three, churches were always organized with elders as soon as possible. Therefore, we could say an informal, unorganized fellowship of believers does not constitute a church. And four, it's for the purpose of doing God's will, which is expressed in many ways, like observing the ordinances, teaching, etc. So two or three are gathered in my name, that's not a church. Actually, if you go read that passage, the passage actually is in the context of church discipline, and it's taken out of context, and then it's applied in many different ways. Now, the definition doesn't completely describe everything. It allows for some flexibility. For example, it does not require that a local church meet in a building specifically set aside for such a purpose. A lot of people have a tendency to go, well, I go to the church in Kennesaw, CBC. That's church, the building. It does not indicate what kind or how many meetings are required to constitute a church. That's not stated anywhere. Principally, it tries to differentiate the difference of the local church from other groups, even church-related ones, like parachurch organizations. The parachurch organizations may be good and helpful if they really pull alongside the church to help. But sometimes they take on a characteristic of their own and people almost consider a parachurch just as good as a local church. And they have uh, sometimes been not as helpful as perhaps they could be. So let's drill down a little bit more and think about some other things with regards to a local church. Like the question would be, well, okay, we have a local church. There is such a thing as a local church. How should it be governed? How should that local church be governed? And there are different forms of of government of a local church that we could consider that have happened or evolved over the years. One form of church government is a hierarchical form of government. And that's practiced in different ways by Roman Catholics, Episcopals, Lutherans, Methodists. And there, the bishops govern the church, and they alone have the power to ordain. Although that form of government's not found in the New Testament, it kind of came into being in the second century. Then there's something called the federal form of government. And that's the churches governed by elders, like in a Presbyterian church or some independent churches. And they have a representative form of government in which the, the people, through them, are represented. And then sometimes there's a distinction made between ruling elders and teaching elders. Then there's the congregational form of government. These forms we call polity. Followers of this polity believe no man or group of men should exercise authority over a local assembly. Therefore, the governing should be in the hands of the members themselves. Some Baptists, Efree, disciples of Christ, Bible and Independence, independent churches follow that pattern. And usually they have a pastor and some deacons. The pastor is ordained to administer the ordinances. Deacons assist and and are responsible for supervising the welfare of the church. But both pastor and deacons are chosen by vote of the entire congregation. And almost all the decisions affecting the church life are decided, in a sense, by the congregation. That's congregational style of government. There's another one, the national church. In some countries, especially in Europe, the head of state is the head of the church and leaders are appointed by some agency. You have a Lutheran church in Scandinavia, a church of England. <coughs> and then finally, there are some where there is no church government. They say pretty much there isn't, there isn't uh, a claim to be, a, to be governed by human beings, only by Christ the Head. I don't think that happens too often, but I guess it's out there. So, which form is the right form? And I would say it's probably a combination of a federal and congregational. The hierarchical form is post-biblical. The national church, the Bible never talks about. In fact, in in the first century, there was no relationship between the state and the church, Roman Empire and the church. And there is a pattern in Scripture for having some, some perspective of governing that takes place. So perhaps a, a federal with some congregational elements is the proper perspective to have with regards to a church. Here's what, here's what Rye Rees suggests. And he calls it the biblical form of church government. Now the reason we're bringing this up is because this is where we're at at CBC. And sometimes, depending on your background, when you come into the church, you're not familiar with this form of church government. Everybody comes with a background of different kinds of theology, ecclesiology, church background, family background. This biblical form of church government probably represents us the best. The biblical form of government is that each church is totally independent from one another. There's no hierarchy of authorities over many churches and no denominational structure. Various evidences used to support a congregational form of government are really evidences for the independence of a local church but there's no higher spiritual court of appeals than the local church. Each local church is to be ruled by a plurality of elders, and they are the leaders of the church. Now, Doug's going to get into that in one of the future sermons in more detail. The relationship of the elders to the people is like shepherds and sheep, yet there are some things where there's a congregational involvement in making decisions for the church and that's gonna be something James is gonna cover, church discipline. It's suggested that perhaps a good procedure for trying to decide and make decisions about many of these things that I just talked about and that we're gonna continue to talk through is as follows. Try to ascertain as closely as possible what the New Testament pattern is. And then, two, work towards the ideal in whatever situation you find yourself. There's little justification for going away from the New Testament pattern. That's what we're trying to accomplish. What is the pattern? what is what we might call normative for a local church today. Just like it was back in the first century. And a lot of people don't necessarily want to do that. And as the years go by, what they begin to do is they begin to create more of a man-oriented institution rather than a god centered church based on purely the Bible. It doesn't necessarily make them bad, but sometimes there's so much organization and so much control that you can't even hear what the head of the church says anymore. Another thing with regards to churches is what we call ordinances. <clears throat> the ordinances of the church. And I never knew it before, but apparently ordinance and sacrament are listed as synonyms in the dictionary. You've heard those terms before, right? But we don't have sacraments here. We have ordinances. Why? What's going on? So they may be synonyms in the dictionary, but there are some very important theological differences in what they know. So listen to this. A sacrament usually has the idea of conveying grace automatically to the one partaking of the sacrament. That's how the Roman Catholics treat the sacraments, and there's seven of them. And there might be some other different kinds of churches that deal with sacraments but they convey in their their perspective they convey grace <clears throat> and we would say not so much ordinance on the other hand usually does not include the concept of conveying grace to the par- participant usually it's a basic idea of a prescribed rite or practice an outward rite prescribed by Christ to be performed by his church. And so there really ends up being two, and they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we have a church, a local church, autonomous, and it's led by elders And we practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because that's what we see in the Bible. Purposes of the local church. This is interesting. If you go through scripture, and this is not going to be a complete list, but if you go through scripture trying to aggregate and think about the purposes of Scripture. There's multiple people who give multiple lists, but they're all overlapping pretty much the same. And on the back of your handouts is somewhat of a comprehensive list. It's not not the most comprehensive. It's something we're kind of working through. And uh, when we were going through this as a preach team, they said, you know what would be helpful maybe instead of going down through a long list would be, can you somehow relate the purposes to the four E's that we keep talking about? Right? Our mission statement had four E's in it. (coughs) Evangelize, establish, equip, and expand. And the evangelize and the expand were on the top of a circle, and the establish and equip was on the bottom of the circle and it's and it's a kind of a ongoing uh, way of thinking about how all of this works and I would suggest to you that the two bottom, the establish and equip are what are us as a local church trying to do in order to enable us to do the top two things, evangelize and expand. And if we learn how to do that well, and it really affects us heart-wise, the top two things are going to happen, evangelization and expansion. If we spend only time on the bottom two. We're just going to get theologically fat and we'll probably end up eating and devouring ourselves. The church is designed to go and evangelize and expand. That's the pur- one of the purposes. So these, these purposes of the local church here, under the establish and equip heading. (coughs) You could say the first purpose is to teach Bible doctrine, teach the content of Scripture, teach the whole counsel of God, make disciples. The second, Brian has brought this out in the last couple of weeks, exercise the function of priesthood. All believers are a priesthood. Three, corporate prayer. Not only praying as an individual, but praying corporately as a local body. Four, observing the two ordinances we talked about, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Five, exercising spiritual gifts. The three chapters in 1 Corinthians talk about this in detail, and the ultimate goal of those gifts is to build up and edify the church. And six, exercising both church discipline and spiritual discipline. Those things, there's probably some more, but those things are characteristic of the goal, the purpose of a local church, and it's the things that would fall under establishing the believers in the faith and equipping the leadership for ministry. Under the evangelize and expand heading, seven, send out missionaries. Eight, provide for the needy in general and do good in this world. Nine, glorify God. And ten, evangelize and witness to the death, resurrection, and ascension. Not only where you live, but also into the whole world. Purposes for the local church. So you're going to see us start to describe more what's involved with some of those purposes. Right? You with me? Yeah? Okay. Now with number six, exercising church discipline and spiritual discipline, there's a subtopic that you could say Well, what is church authority? Who gives you the the authority to do church discipline? So I'm going to kind of just spend a couple of minutes on, this is one of the characteristics of a local church, and I'm going to set the groundwork for some things James is going to come in with later on. A couple couple of sermons down the road and there's two passages that talk about this this term authority the first is matthew 16 13 through 19 turn there if you would matthew 16 13 through 19 Now, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter said to him, So how will Christ build his church? He gives them the keys, the authority. Jesus affirms Peter's confession. But then he also gives him authority, him and the church. And then the other passage is Matthew 18, 15 through 19. couple of pages over. Matthew 18, 15 through 19. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. There's that phrase again. The church has authority that was given by Christ. Now in this case, in Matthew 18, it involves discipline. Three stages of discipline. Church discipline. We have a probably a little bit of a back-away attitude when we hear that term. Because I don't think we completely understand it. Like I say, James is going to go into it a little bit more, but we decided we would we would start to to deal with some of it here. Three stages. First at an individual level, second at a group level, third, with the church as a whole. Now there, there, when we come down through that that process, by the way, the process doesn't happen one, two, three, okay. There's there's an approach, a loving approach that's supposed to take place with you, you the church, not the elders, not that we can't be involved, but this is a responsibility of you, the church, amongst yourselves. And it is a kind of a congregational form of polity that needs to take place. But when it takes place, the goal is restoration not punishment. The goal is to never get to the church as a whole. The goal is that hopefully you can talk with your brother or sister and get things resolved before it ever gets to bringing the whole church into the conversation to deal with the problem. And it's got a lot to do with what was brought out by Brian in prior sermons, about protecting the gospel and protecting the holiness of the church. It's your responsibility. I don't think most people realize that. But it's your responsibility. So we need to be thinking about that. This is not the last time you're going to hear us talking about it. This passage implies that we're applying God's word to God's people. In Jesus' day, the Jews spoke of binding and loosing when a rabbi would forbid something or permit something. There's a paraphrase which was kind of interesting. The paraphrase was from uh, something called the Williams translation. It goes as follows. Whatsoever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven. Point. The church does not tell heaven what to do, but obeys on earth what heaven commands the church to do. That's how we think about finding and loosing. And we see this practiced in a number of passages. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians 1. We see this happening in the early church. And we as a congregation exercise this authority that we got from Jesus when we're considering the who and the what of the gospel and anything that significantly impacts the nature the integrity or mission of the church. That belongs to the church. And the authority has been given to the church to deal with it. So, a local church, what is it? Remember the definition? A local church is an assembly of baptized believers meeting together regularly in a particular locality under the oversight of recognized elders to participate in biblical teaching, fellowship, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. And it's for the purpose of bringing glory to God and has been given the authority to make disciples and establish the Church of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to think about how do I bring glory to God? Think local church. Think it's not just about me, it's about God's purpose and plan. And his purpose and plan is to build his church. And that involves every one of us, and it involves our families, and it involves us as a body of believers, being one-minded about God's purpose and plan, and being committed and serious about doing it. It's not about attendance. It's about us how we relate to each other, how we help each other, how we build up each other, and how we have the goal of bringing God's glory as a local body of believers. How we organize ourselves, how we govern ourselves, how we discipline ourselves. All of that is taken into account. I went back and I listened to Brian's first sermon because when he closed it, he closed it and he had some some interesting comments. He said, the church is going to be what it is that proclaims the rule and reign of Jesus, their true king. And it's through the church that the world will see the wisdom of our God. If you remember the passage in Ephesians, the manifold wisdom of God through the church, this visible visible representation of the church is what the world sees. Now the world needs to see it, not just when we're sitting here, the world needs to see it also when we go out. And it's through the church God has chosen to bring glory to his name. Not man's way, God's way. I loved it when he said, we're not free to create our own job description. And we're also not free to create our own local church description. Then he concluded with a couple of questions. has your thoughts about the local church brought joy or frustration? And he asked the question, where is the church on a scale of importance in your lives? So I would ask those same questions again. If you really think and believe, that God's local church is part of his purpose and plan. Where is the church on a scale of importance in your lives today? And where does it need to be if it's not at the right point on the scale? I'm gonna close with a little write-up from Alistair Begg, study we've used here and a study that we're doing in our neighborhood right now, with a neighborhood Bible study. And uh, when I came across it again, I was like, "That is really good." And I think it applies to what we talked about over the past couple of weeks and this morning. So listen to how he closes the chapter. He says, "In the 1920s, Lord Reith helped to establish the BBC." the British Broadcasting Corporation and then, from 1927, served as its first Director General. He was a somewhat severe man from the Highlands of Scotland. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 60s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing. And that this BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming output. People were no longer interested in it, he said, and the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Sound familiar? Lord Reith, who was six foot six tall, stood up and told this man to take his seat. And he said the following. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And you know what? It will. It will stand when BBC and CNN and Fox, as well, when they dwindle and die. The kingdom of God will stand when every organization and institution and empire meets its end. Jesus said, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your church may seem small. As you drive to meet with the household of God on a Sunday, you may pass hundreds of houses whose inhabitants give not a thought to what you are doing, except politely, or maybe not so politely, Write it. It may feel little, but the kingdom of God is unsmashable, and it has an embassy in your neighborhood that we call the local church. Don't be discouraged as you meet. Don't be distraught over dwindling numbers or a more and more hostile media. Instead, commit to it. Serve your church family. Give yourself to it. Because when the Lord builds his church, either in number or maturity, through our labors, gifts, and giving, we're being used to build the only kingdom that will last forever. Nothing is coming next. So give your best to the kingdom. It may feel small, but it's never in vain, for this kingdom is eternal.